Hello, and welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. As we start another season at Fort Wayne Ballet and with the podcast, we wanted to do something a little bit different. Usually we talk about dance and uh, dancers from a Finnish perspective. Performances, rehearsals to get to performances, the creative process. But we wanted to spend a little bit of time of the next two podcasts to talk about the journey, specifically training, both from a historical perspective of what's needed for dancers and having it as your daily life and activity as, as a beneficial thing. So with that, I'd like to introduce Karen Gibbons-Brown, the Artistic Director of Fort Wayne Ballet, who will be talking to us today. Karen, good Thanks. to see you. Thanks for having me. I know things have evolved since the beginning of ballet and dance in a codified structure. Talk a little bit about how things have changed as it relates to expectation, physical expectation of a dancer. Well, if you go very far back before there was even a codified syllabus, dance was used for a lot of purposes, celebrations, good harvests, births, deaths, weddings, and then socially as well. It was a form of communication in a social aspect. And there were times when dances got mixed and mingled. And here's what I mean. There was the royal dancing in the courts, and then there was the dancing out in the provinces. The problem was when the knights would go out into the provinces, they would get these dances of the different segments and sections of the country and bring them back into the court. The court dances were taken by the knights into the provinces, so there was a mix and match. And along came the need for a codified syllabus of dance, not just so when you went to the court, everybody knew the dance of the day and was doing the same thing. They were all dancing the same dance, but also because they didn't like the bleed through. The kings didn't like the bleed through of this sort of dance. So they created these dances that we now know as court dances, but they have names that became names of ballet steps. For instance, the bore or the pavan, or the mazurka, which is a little more peasant-like dance. So King Louis XIV is credited with giving the first codified syllabus to classical ballet. And classical ballet is as we know it, and you're absolutely right, it has morphed tremendously. So everybody in the court was learning the same style of dance, and since he was the king, he put it all in French. So when, when you say everybody in the court, is that everybody, or is it just people in a certain status, or how does that work from the standpoint of who would have had the opportunity to learn these steps? It was people of a certain status, and ironically, the women couldn't dance with the men. They had separate ballet Even masters. Even in the court dancers? Only in social functions that were sanctioned by the king. So they learned dances off by themselves with a different ballet master, and they had their own little ballet companies, remembering that the word ballet means to dance. I think that's a really important point in this. So they were learning dances off on the side. The men were learning dances, and it was really important. It was a part of their culture. It was a part of the social status. So you would take a fencing class, and you would take a dance class, you would have lunch, and then you would go out and hunt for the rest of the day. So dancing was critical to the social status. And even the way they held their feet, you know, which is the beginning of what we now call turnout, indicated the social stature that they had. The color of the heels that they wore was also a part of that. So we have all of these little odd pieces that are really geared around the social status of the person that's learning the dance and where they're doing it and how they're doing it. So since this is a structured court social dance, 
When do we begin to see that evolve into different physical and expectation and training needs that have needed to be there beyond just knowing the steps of the mazurka or the bore? When does that begin to happen? That actually happens with the codified syllabus. Okay. I think that we often forget that the steps that we now teach in class today were still a part of the syllabus back in 1661 when King Louis XIV and his ballet masters and conductors put together the syllabus for dance and for music as well. At some point, women were allowed to dance publicly, but that was in the late 1700s. They didn't get to dance publicly. If there was a part for a female in a specific production, it was always done by a younger male. I think when people think dance, they think lots of lifts and turns and jumps. But so much of that work was done very ground to ground or terre a terre. Some of that was the physicality of the dancers in that day or the people that were dancing in that day. And some of it was the costuming or the clothing that they wore. They tended to be a little heavier in fabric heavier in the way they were constructed. So the movement quality was not high or a lot of turns. That started developing with this syllabus that we got from the courts, the French courts, and turns started being added in. And then jumps started coming along, and that was big jumps. They could kind of lift their feet off the floor. We would never call that a big jump today. And were these still people of the court, or were these now dedicated dancers? People of the court... But then that broke away. So people of the court, because King Louis XIV loved to dance himself and was the star in most of the ballets until he could no longer physically do that. So then we started having dance companies of the court. So now we're in the early 1700s moving on through. I know you probably shouldn't have asked all of these historical no, actually, questions. So, so the question is when you start to get to the point of training, right. you now have these companies or groups of people. This is what they're there to do. Right. So as you start to do that, what does that training beginning to look like with the syllabus and putting the dance together? The names of the steps have remained the same. We've continued to expand them, and they tend to almost always still be in French. But the dancers of the day were training to entertain the courts. They would have big spectacles where the dancers participated. And often dance wasn't just dance by itself. It was more often included in an opera, for instance. That's historically just what it was. But now we start to get our own dance companies in the 17 and early 1800s. And the dancers training, as I said, the steps were often called the same things, but the expectation of the movement has changed. So we're still talking little bits of jumps, turning twice, but they were so serious about their dance. I tell our students this sometimes, that if they didn't show up for rehearsals, they were jailed. And there was a very famous dancer that we all recognize, Vestris was his name, Auguste Vestris, and he was one of the king's favorite dancers. And he would get thrown in jail because he'd missed rehearsal, and the king would have him taken out of jail to come and perform in the courts and then put him back in jail again. So they were very serious about their work. Not that we aren't today, but the expectation was different. You were there to serve the court, and you needed to show up when you were supposed to show up. It wasn't a job like we have today. When we start to talk about going through the years and the decades and things beginning to evolve, mm -hmm. you've already mentioned going from a court situation now to a more organized situation where you begin to have groups of dancers, choreography that's a little bit different than just the standard court dances. When we start to look at the different needs physically, things that change in terms of the expectation of what a dancer needs to be able to do, 
What are some of those markers that begin to change into what we kind of see today? So the dancers in the mid-1800s were a little more rounded. That was the style of the day. That was just how their bodies were. And along came this dancer named Marie Taglioni. And we credit her with an awful lot of things, although historically we know she wasn't the first to rise up onto point. She was the first to do the full-length ballet on point and really give it a credibility in the world of dance that it has today. So that was in the mid-1800s. So point shoes significantly changed what female dancers specifically needed to do. They could look more ethereal and like they were floating. So for the women, they tended to not be quite as soft. They needed to be a little easier to lift. And then the men, previously, they were heads of everything. They got to do all of the roles. But at that day and time, they were what we call lift and toters. They would just lift the ladies up so that they looked lovely and ethereal. That was a significant change in ballet, but it, the point shoe didn't change much at all until the 1970s when people started to evolve the shoe because the demands of the dancers And how much does the, does the equipment, does the shoe help? How much do you use that as opposed to how much do you do without the shoe? Well, we know now you're supposed to be strong enough to be able to rise up on point without the shoe. The shoe is not all. You have to have the leg and the foot strength. But we know now that if the shoe isn't solid and sturdy enough, it decomposes the cartilage, et cetera, in your feet. So it can cause some damage. You want to so make sure So it's a sure combination of the equipment and the skill. Right. You don't want the shoe too hard. You don't want the shoe too soft. But it has to mold to the foot of the dancer wearing it. So I think point shoes was a significant change. But in that point of time, the skirts that the women wore started lifting above the ankles, which you know, was very taboo in that day and time. And there were riots in the theater when women would show their ankles. But the skirts got shorter and shorter into what we now know as a bell-shaped skirt of tulle, which was called the romantic tutu, in reference to the time period. Then technique continued. The skirts got shorter. Legs could lift higher, jumps could go higher, footwork could become more petite and intricate, and all of those things started happening for the women. The men, their outfits, or their tunnelets, got shorter. They could move their legs more. They had more freedom of movement. So the expansion and breadth of movement changed significantly. And we're talking in the late 1800s. Along came the man we call the father of the Russian ballet, Petipa. Marius Petipa, who was actually a Frenchman, and he created all the full-length ballets that you often see today, the big names, Nutcracker, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty. So that others. transition, when he's choreographing that and you're looking at these classic ballets, where does the transition begin to happen related to the physical needs that are more athletic, what we now think of as a dancer being an athlete, as opposed to what you described 200 years previous where you probably wouldn't have thought of it that way. Where does that right. begin to happen? In that time period. Now we're into the classical era of dance, late 1800s, and Petipa felt that the men could do more than just lift and tote. So they got their own variations where they would be featured as a solo artist as opposed to just standing behind the women. We move into the early 20th century where the art took a whole different form. We have the ballet russe, we have Diaghilev, who was pulling together the great artists of the day, the visual artists, composers, the dancers, and creating these amazing works that weren't necessarily as athletic, but were artistically stimulating. So the technique of the dancer continued to evolve based on the needs of the choreography, 
not based on the fact that dance can continue to move forward. If you were to talk about that transition in a little more detail related to the athletics, I know everyone's familiar with what they believe in their head to be the evolution of the ballet aesthetic. And I understand it's a visual art form, so there's an element of that. But from a physical standpoint, as you start to deal with things that are expected for you to do, both in terms of fine motor skills, aerobic and anaerobic, as well as strength, where do you begin to see training needs? And do you see dancers or do they think of themselves as athletes and artists? And how should they think about that? So... Often athletics address the larger muscle groups in the body, your quadriceps, your glutes, etc. Not leaving anything out, but just to give you an idea. And that was exactly how dancers trained in the day. I'm talking about the 1800s, early, early 1900s. As we learned more about kinesiology, as we learned more about what the steps could be and the clarity of the steps could be, the technique, not the artistry, the technique, then we start to really work on the finer muscles. One of the lovely examples that we have in our history is the artist Degas. He was one of the first artists that we know of that painted specifically the musculature of dancers. So dancers became more aware of what they needed to do. With what they needed to do, their technique improved. With their technique improving, the finer muscle tone got better. With that, the technique continued to improve. So it's just like a giant staircase. We talked just for a second about the aesthetic. And again, I don't want to take away from that importance. But as you look at what has changed, perhaps over the last 30 years, in terms of training, that really is different than what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago about how you look at yourself as a dancer, what you need to be able to do as much as how you look. What has changed? I'd say that's really more about a 50-year progress than a 30-year. So if I may, many of the European schools and other schools in our world of dance require an audition for acceptance. And what they're looking for are these things, natural flexibility, natural extensions, natural capability to learn, nice proportion that is aesthetically pleasing, and there are tests that these students actually go through to see how much they are projected to grow, what their limb length will be, how far apart their eyes might be, how large their ears might be. So it's very selective. In America, we are not that way at all. If anyone wants to learn to dance, they are capable of doing it. And that's one of the biggest things that sets our training in America apart from training in many, not all, but many of the other places in the world. And in those other places, you may take dance as something that's fun in hopes of getting into one of these major programs. But if you don't pass certain tests before you even dance a step, then you will likely not be accepted. So that's something that we've changed here in America. There are a few schools that do require that acceptance, but by and large, if you want to learn to dance, you can. The trick is, in those larger schools, you have teachers that have been well-trained and well-trained not just as dancers, but to teach. And in America, you don't have to go through the same training to be a teacher. You, yourself, Jim, could be a dance teacher if you wanted. If you had the credibility and people believed it, you could hang a shingle out and dance. So there are a lot of conversations about, is that safe for a person's body, etc.? As our society has continued to evolve, specifically in the last 50 years, 
the requirements of a dancer's body has become more accepting and more broad. What do you mean more accepting? So it used to be you had to be between 5'5 five five and 5'7 as a female. Males, of course, are taller, and you needed to weigh no more than 115 pounds. Well, today, we don't really talk about that in the same way. You have to be safe. You have to be well-toned. You have to be healthy. And that's more important than the number on the scale. Now, that has been the last 30 years that that's changed. Well, and I think one of the things that I'd like to spend just a minute on is we go back to being toned and the aesthetic, and that makes perfect sense. But when you are somebody who's training or active as a professional dancer, there are certain things that you physically have to be able to do that. There are things your muscles have to do. And, And I think often that gets overlooked. And I think in the day and age we live in now, dance would be better to think about themselves as an athlete that does something artistic as opposed to I'm an artist first, because I I think people misunderstand. So explain a little bit about the kind of day in, day out training that's necessary for a female to stand on point or to balance or a male to lift a female. How does that work? I'd like to back up a minute and talk about that little bit about the requirements of a dancer, a female dancer specifically. I think those requirements were put in place because the men were having to lift the women up over their heads. And you want to make sure that you're not taking too much weight in a dancer's body that's underneath the female lifting her up because of the pressure on the lower back, the knees, the ankles, and the hips. And it became compression injuries and workman's comp challenges. So as we've learned more about the body and we learn how to physically train the body with cross-training as opposed just to dance training, things have been able to evolve to a different point. To train as a dancer, every dancer you see on stage started with those basic motor skills, skipping, hopping, jumping, leaping, galloping, all of those, we all started in those classes that made sure that we had the coordination and the skill level to be able to do those things. But as you begin to evolve, you know, you start once a week taking dance and then maybe twice a week. And the more skilled you become, the more those fine muscles that we spoke of just a little bit earlier need attention. And the exercises become a little more intricate and involved. And maybe even newer things are introduced to the dancer to continue to develop those finer muscles in the body that are required. It's the trigger response in the muscles that become important to move quickly or to lift or to partner together in Padadas. Women and men, or young ladies and young gentlemen, take classes together, but then at some point, classes divide out. So the men go off in one room to learn to jump, leap, turn, spin, whatever they're going to do, and ladies get the point shoes and work in the point shoes. But there are a series of exercises that are required to be able to rise up onto point safely, not just can I stand on my toes. We get children all the time that can stand up on their toes. That's just a flexible child's foot, but we wanna make sure they do it safely. When we talk about the day-to-day training and discipline, (laughs) describe what discipline looks like in a training routine of a dancer, and then also incorporate a little bit of the daily class. Many people are familiar with them as standing at a bar. What is that involved, and how does that include it in that daily training? Well, we're jumping from taking once a week to dancing five or six days a week, and there is a lot that happens in between. You don't start at seven once a week and then at 10 go into six days a week. That's, the body is generally not prepared to do that. 
Uh, it, there are some growth things that have to happen. Growth plates need to close. Full length of limb. Guys shouldn't lift girls when they're too young because of their growth plates. You don't want to damage the joints for down-the-road work. When you get to the point of dancing professionally or as a, an up-and-coming rising professional or someone who's very serious about dance, then it's a five- or six-day-a-week class process. We have adults that would take five or six days a week if we had those classes offered to them just because they love to dance. They love to dance. What does that mean? Love to dance. I, I think that might be something different for everybody. I think for me, what I miss most about dancing professionally is the way it feels to move through space. The command of the body that you have, the capability that you have to self-propel yourself into the air and feel like you're flying is amazing. If I'm an, somebody who is a relatively novice, but I take a dance class every day, mm -hmm. you've referred to, and I believe that everybody gets something out of this, what might that feel like for somebody who is older or not professional in terms of what they, and why might they want to do it? I think a sense of accomplishment. You don't have to control your body in the same way when you sit at a computer as when you are totally relying on your body to be safe and move you through space. So we say everybody dances, and that's very true. You pick up a pen when you le drop it on the floor, that's called a port de bras movement of the arms or port de corps movement of the body. But when you put that into ballet form and start working on those finer muscles, the way it feels to have that command and control is really liberating. It sounds, we talk a lot about the discipline of dance and what you have to go through to do that, but it is really actually liberating in the end to have that. Well, to wrap this segment up, it, one of the things about using your body as an instrument, regardless of what it is, is it ages, it changes, it, <laughs> yes. it doesn't stay the same. And that is just, the, that's a truism you can't avoid. But as a, a former dancer or as even somebody who's older, who wants to be active and wants to, wants to make sure that they still feel like an active person and age is changing things, how can a dancer or an individual continue to train as they do get older, start to retire, they're not going to be the same, but as you mentioned, there's still something freeing about it. And what's the benefit of that? You asked earlier about what sort of paces a dancer goes through. So you start at the bar to help keep your balance. It's not a crutch. It's just there to lightly touch. So some of the things you gain from working at the bar besides balance are, again, your rotation, which allows you to move more freely with more safety and faster. You can move more quickly when you turn your legs out. And then you practice the basic turns at the bar. You come into the center and you add to that, and you add jumps that start small because you want to make sure you're developing the body or the warm-up process correctly, and you progress to large jumps where you soar and leap across and jump and turn in the air. And that was the liberating feeling I, I was speaking of. I think when you are at a different point and you're not expecting yourself to jump up in the air and turn around two or three times, or you're not expecting your leg to go up over your head when you do a développe or opening your leg up to the front or the side or the back. I think what you still gain from that is the sense of balance and control over your body. Balance is a big thing as people age. So if you can find the capability to shift your balance freely and comfortably through different steps or different levels of your body in space, high, middle, low, 
I think you have a safer aging process as well. Well, this has been very interesting. The next podcast, which I hope everyone tunes in for, we're going to talk a little bit about specifics for today in terms of choosing a studio. But when you're choosing a studio, whether it's for a small beginning dancer or an adult, as we talked about, who wants to stay active, and why is that a good thing to put as a part of your active lifestyle? So we'll do that next time. Karen, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shop Productions. Our guest was Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website and the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.